This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. This is John Freilich, one of your hosts. Today, I've got a very special guest with me. Brandon Tang is a PGY4 subspecialty resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. He's passionate about the intersection of medical education and quality improvement and inspires to become an academic clinician educator. In his final year of training, he will be completing a master's in medical education at Harvard University with his thesis focusing on clinical quality metrics and how they can be used in residency training. And in addition to all this, he recently published a systematic review from the CMAJ in February of this year, and it was looking at evidence-based practices for clinical education and healthcare delivery in the clinical teaching unit. Today, he joins me to talk more about his paper. Brandon, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of Healthy Debate, so really excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So, you know, I really enjoyed reading this paper and I was hoping that we could kind of chat about a couple of questions I had and just get your opinion about some aspects of it. You know, here in Calgary, we affectionately call our clinical teaching unit the medical teaching unit, but I was glad to see that the search criteria included both of those as they were doing, as you guys set up your study. I guess one of the first questions I'll have for you is, uh, I just love to know, like, what motivated you to pursue this study? Thanks for asking. This idea of how you design a CTU is something I've been thinking about actually since medical school. I remember feeling overwhelmed like most medical students doing. And I just thought, you know, is this the way CTU is done everywhere? Am I the problem or is this, is this just how it is? And as I got more advanced in my training, moved into residency, I started to think about this more, especially as I become more interested in quality and education at that time. And the general idea was, what if we could write a set of guidelines for CTU in the same way we have guidelines for a disease like pneumonia? Like, what are the best practices? Are the things that we're doing actually based on evidence? Or is it more so just tradition? Or that's the way we've always done it. So the overall motivation was to try and create a set of guiding principles for how we should be doing CTU. Fantastic. It's kind of a, almost a meta in and of itself. You know, we love evidence-based medicine, but like, do we have evidence-based for how we actually teach and train trainees? So great that you did this project. I guess first, you know, you speak about purposeful rounding and one of the studies seemed to show that it led to shorter duration of rounds as well as reduced average length of stay and complications for patients. What do you think it is about purposeful rounding that might be driving this result? So I think It's important to acknowledge that on the CTU, most of the frontline care is delivered by people who are pretty junior. So medical students, first year residents, and we all have a tendency to round in some arbitrary order. So it could be just based on location. You see the patients that are closest to you first because it's easiest. Maybe you make your way down from top to bottom of the hospital. Maybe you just go off your list and whoever's at the beginning of the list, you see them first. The people at the end, you see them last. I remember one of the places where I worked when the elevators were having issues, we would start in the top of the hospital and work our way down just because we didn't want to go up the stairs. We wanted to go down. So the point being that it can be quite arbitrary, the order in which we see patients. And junior learners don't often have that like sense of like what needs to be done or prioritized. So purposeful rounding is essentially making the implicit explicit. So you would say something like, okay, these patients need to go home. These patients are sickest. Let's see them first. And then that supersedes whatever arbitrary decision-making people have in their minds, like based on location or convenience. And it really streamlines and organizes your workflow. So I think that to me, there's a good underlying explanation about why this makes sense. 
And for all of us who are engaging in more supervisory and teaching roles, I think it's important to try and spell out some of those things that might seem obvious to us, but aren't so obvious to our learners, such as purposeful rounding or seeing people in a thoughtful order. Yeah, I really like that. I mean, I think it's important for learners to try to figure out what they need to do with their day. But at the same time, starting these out with a bang and sort of identifying, yeah, these people are the sickest. Let's prioritize them. Let's see the other ones as well who are going to be discharged. It makes a lot of sense. And it's pretty incredible that there could actually be positive patient outcomes as a result of that. But, you know, maybe not too surprising. I guess another question I got for you. So, you know, here in Calgary, we do try to have dedicated bedside teaching, you know, about once a week, but there's always a bit of a tension just between the time commitments of this and whether it's like a useful experience for learners. What were some of the main findings that you came across when it came to bedside rounds? So I'm so glad you asked this question because our study definitely replicated this finding of tension between different groups. So in particular, the patients and attending physicians tended to be more in favor of this practice, while learners tended to be more against it. And the reason why was that the patients found that, in general, they enjoyed the team interaction, that kind of style of communication. The staff in particular emphasized that as well. They found that it was a great way to role model how to communicate to patients when you have the whole team watching. On the flip side, the learners found generally that it was a time inefficient process with lots of studies reporting that um, the learners found it was taking away from their educational experience when in fact it's meant to be for their benefit to the exact opposite. So my personal opinion on this is that there is value to bedside rounding. You know, you get to see the rest of the team, patients that you're not just looking for yourself, putting a face to the name rather than just being sort of an item on the list, you actually know who that person is that you haven't seen or but heard about every day. You get to see how other people communicate, in particular the staff physician. You get to see and learn from other patients who you might not have direct care over yourself. But I think all of these benefits need to be considered in the modern context. So when you have 20 patients to round on, ton of administrative tasks, partially exacerbated by the system and EMR, walking around as a team to see all 20 patients isn't the best practice from an efficiency perspective. So I think that being selective about selecting patients who have the most educational value, maybe those who are just admitted or who have particularly interesting findings or things to discuss about and bringing the team around to see them would work best. I recall when I participated in this sort of practice as a learner, sometimes you'd be engaged, but then you'd look around the group and sometimes people are just standing there. Um, so you can lose engagement if they're just sort of standing for prolonged periods of time. So I think being selective about who you're going to do this practice on makes the most sense to me, uh, the best of both worlds, so to say. Yeah, I can, I can appreciate that. Uh, another interesting concept that came up was around this idea of geographic wards. And, and I've worked at one hospital in Toronto where all medicine patients are on the same unit. Did you have much evidence to support geographic wards? And if not, were there any downsides? Are there other things that could be bad other than maybe physicians not getting their step count in if they're not having to move all over the hospital? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, so this is another really interesting topic. There was a handful of papers, I believe about four, which focused on this. And one of them in particular was a qualitative study, generally finding that this practice may contribute to more efficient and shorter rounds, which kind of makes sense because everyone you need is co-localized in the same place. The qualitative studies tried to uncover a mechanism for why this might be. 
generally reporting that enhanced the communication. It promoted chance encounters. So this idea you're walking through the halls, you run into the physiotherapist or the nurse who you wanted to speak to anyways. So it definitely makes good sense. The main downside though was bed flow. So one of the studies, I believe was an RCT, noted that when you have large volumes of patients, geography can be hard to maintain because the patients who've been waiting in the emergency room might just need to go to the first available bed. So I've seen different institutions cope with this uh, in different ways. So some hospitals, um, they just send the patients to the next available bed. And then to preserve geography, whichever doctor is looking after that area will then take over that patient the next day. Some hospitals will say whoever admitted the patient, that's the person who continues following them throughout the duration of the hospitalization, which makes sense uh, in some ways too, because you know the patient really well. There's that continuity of care and less handovers. So we didn't really have enough power in the studies to definitively say if geography kind of supersedes the idea of peer continuity where you follow all the patients you admitted. My personal bias having trained in systems of geography is that there are many clear benefits which just make practical sense. This idea that everyone's in the same place, it's easier to see them, it's easier to communicate with the care providers, and as well, all of the allied health team knows the same patients. So it's easier to coordinate their discharge and admission and all the other care they might need. Whereas if the patient's on another floor, I find that there's a whole new set of other care providers that you have to engage in, which creates a lot of challenges. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, the geography, sorry, the geographic ward, it definitely makes a lot of intuitive sense. But of course, the idea of patients kind of being stuck, if you will, in the emergency department for more than like even a day or a couple of days, you don't want that because that's going to compromise patient care as well. But I think in a perfect world, if all of my patients could be in one place of the hospital, it would definitely make my day a little more straightforward, I think. So I guess another aspect of your study was looking at how we divvy patients up overnight from new admissions. And there's a few different approaches. As a trainee in Toronto, I remember one of the hospitals had sort of a one team admitted the bulk of patients in kind of like a two to one to one fashion, whereas other systems, they might kind of divvy out the admissions evenly across the board. Um, your study looked at whether kind of that bolus version versus a drip version led to better outcomes. What did you find? So there were a few very high quality studies uh, which examined this topic. And essentially it seems like spreading the admissions out amongst several teams rather than allocating them all to a single or few teams is better. It leads to improved outcomes, hard outcomes, things like length of stay, even maybe a signal for mortality benefit. I think this makes practical sense too because admission and discharge are the two most critical time periods in a patient's hospitalization. Some people say it's like taking off and landing of an airplane. And when you have a huge number of admissions going to a single team, you can create huge swings in their census. So for example, you could go from 10 to maybe 18 or 20 patients in a single day if one team was admitting all the patients. So then suddenly that most critical time period in the admission is sort of being diluted because there's huge stress on the workflow. So I think that this idea that spreading out the admissions improves outcomes also makes good intuitive sense to me. And I think that's the way a lot of hospitals are moving. 
Yeah, I think the idea of kind of sharing the load is a really important one. It's just, it's really hard when you show up and you've got, you know, five new admissions overnight when they're inevitably going to be complex medical patients. Whereas if that can be spread out amongst other team members and other teams, I think that makes a big difference both for kind of morale, but I'm sure outcomes as well. So it's, it's interesting just to see that that's been studied. It's reassuring, I think, more than anything. Um, so another question that I have for you is, you know, there's always this what is the ideal number of patients per CTU? And I'm sure, you know, it really depends on a few different factors, but did you find any evidence to suggest that X number of patients, whatever that X might be, is kind of the safest or the best? Is there a golden number? Oh, I wish we had found a golden number. I really do. We weren't able to, mainly because the studies didn't examine quantitatively, this relationship between the variables of team size and patient outcomes in that way. However, there was some signal for what that range of the golden number might be. So the studies instead often applied a arbitrary cap on team size. So they would say we're limiting patients in our wards to around 15 to 20 per team, usually as part of multi-pronged interventions. And then they looked at you know, what they found, generally finding improved educational satisfaction, improved outcomes. But the problem was they were doing so many interventions at once. So the team cap being one of many things done at the same time. Now, I think this is an important topic, though, as you say, because CTUs or MTUs across Canada are noticing the volumes are creeping up. So we're all wondering, like, what is the sweet spot for how much volume that the learners should be seeing? And I think that the underlying point that this is alluding to is this idea that you want enough volume so that people can be challenged to have that desirable difficulty, but you don't want it to be unsafe. And you also want there to be time for education. A lot of the qualitative studies suggested that the time that we spend on the CTU on teaching is basically the leftover time after patient care. So if you have too many patients, you spend your day seeing the patients and you spend less time on education. It's just simple math. So I think that this idea of finding the optimal team size is important for quality and education. So for those two dual missions of the CTU-MTU. That's, that's really important. And it may be just a follow-up question to that. Like, was there any signal for like the appropriate number of patients per trainee? And I, I'm sure that also would depend, like, is it an internal medicine resident? Is it an off-service resident? Is it a clinical clerk? But was there any signal there? Hmm, great question. Um, there wasn't that kind of fidelity. I don't recall any particular studies which examine that in particular. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, I'm not surprised. It would be really great to know, but a, a kind of a complicated study. I don't know. Maybe. Do you have any future kind of research plans? Like, what's up next for you? Yeah. Thanks for asking. So, as I said, for me, this kind of intersection between education and quality is where I want to focus my efforts. So, I think this team size question is very interesting. I've been thinking a little bit about how we could leverage the large clinical database, uh, Gemini, in Ontario to try and answer this question. I feel like empirically there must be a way to do it retrospectively, looking at the association between different team sizes and uh, patient outcomes. Um, other things I'm interested in, uh, the focus of my master's is going to be on how we can use clinical performance measures for educational purposes. So let's say you had a disease like pneumonia. You could look at what the residents are doing, again, using EMR data, such as like chest x-ray ordering, CT chest. Are people just ordering procalcitonin for everyone? I know that's a bit of a Western thing I trained in UBC, as opposed to uh, something that's not done as often in Ontario. Um, so really trying to give people quantitative feedback based on clinical metrics on how they're doing. 
and also the educational piece uh, from a patient perspective. You know, like we have such complex patients, it's hard to counsel them on all the different things that they encounter. So I think it'd be really interesting to try and develop some streamlined resources on the most common diseases in IM to facilitate that discharge. Again, that critical moment of landing the airplane or exiting the hospital, as I alluded to. That's amazing. Well, I mean, this paper that you guys put together was was pretty incredible. And so I really look forward to seeing what else you churn out over the years. And uh, thank you very much for joining me today to talk about what you found. It would be great to have you back as you get new results and, and keep me posted because you find out what that golden number is. That's going to be a big deal. Thanks, John. Yeah, I just want to take this time to acknowledge uh, there was a huge team that contributed to this research. Medical students, residents, staff physicians. It was probably about three years of work. A couple resubmissions, I won't say how many. So it was definitely worth it in the end. And I'm glad you found it impactful. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, congratulations to you and to your team on an incredible piece of work. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Take care. Thanks. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.